Chapter 16 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 16 Discoveries at Kuyanjik. Procession of figures bearing fruit and game. Locusts led horses, an Assyrian campaign, Dagon, or the fish god, the chambers of records, inscribed clay tablets, return to Nimrod, effects of the flood, discoveries, small temple under high mound, the evil spirit, fish god, fine bas-relief of the king, extracts from the inscription, great inscribed monolith, extracts from the inscription, cedar beams, small objects, second temple, marble figure, and other objects. During my absence in the desert, the excavations at Kuyunjik had been actively carried on under the superintendence of Toma Shishman. On my arrival, he described many interesting discoveries, and I hastened to the ruins, crossing in a rude ferry boat the river, now swollen, by the spring rains, to more than double its usual size. The earth had been completely removed from the sides of the long gallery on the walls of which had been portrayed the transport of the large stone and of the winged bulls. An outlet was discovered near its western end, opening into a narrow descending passage, an entrance, it would appear, into the palace from the river side. Its length was ninety-six feet, its breadth not more than thirteen. The walls were panelled with sculptured slabs about six feet high. Those to the right, in descending, represented a procession of servants carrying fruit, flowers, game, and supplies for a banquet, preceded by mace-bearers. The first servant, following the guard, bore an object which I should not hesitate to identify with the pineapple, unless there were every reason to believe that the Assyrians were unacquainted with that fruit. The leaves sprouting from the top proved that it was not the cone of a pine-tree or fir. After all, the sacred symbol held by the winged figures in the Assyrian sculptures may be the same fruit, and not, as I have conjectured, that of a coniferous tree. The attendants who followed carried clusters of ripe dates and flat baskets of osier work, filled with pomegranates, apples, and bunches of grapes. They raised in one hand small green boughs to drive away the flies. Then came men bearing hares, partridges, and dried locusts fastened on rods. The locust has ever been an article of food in the East, and is still sold in the markets of many towns in Arabia. Being introduced in this bas-relief amongst the choice delicacies of a banquet, it was probably highly prized by the Assyrians. The locust-bearers were followed by a man with strings of pomegranates. Then came, two by two, attendants carrying on their shoulders low tables, such as are still used in the East at feasts, loaded with baskets of cakes and fruits of various kinds. The procession was finished by a long line of servants bearing vases of flowers. These figures were dressed in a short tunic, confined at the waist by a shawl or girdle. They wore no headgear, their hair falling in curls on their shoulders. On the opposite walls of the passage were fourteen horses without trappings, each horse having a simple halter twisted around its lower jaw, by which it was led by a groom. The animals and men were designed with considerable truth and spirit. It is probable that the sculpture forming the upper end of the passage, but now entirely destroyed, represented the king receiving this double procession. The passage may have led to the banqueting hall or to a chamber where royal feasts were sometimes held, 
and was therefore adorned with appropriate subjects. At its western end, the gallery turned abruptly to the north, its walls being there built of solid stone masonry. I lost all further traces of it, as the workmen were unable at that time to carry on the tunnel beneath an accumulated mass of earth and rubbish about forty feet thick. As the workmen could no longer, without some danger, excavate in this part of the ruins, they had returned to the chamber already described as containing a series of bas-reliefs representing the capture and sack of a large city in the mountains, and as opening into the broad gallery on whose walls were depicted the various processes employed by the Assyrians in moving their colossal figures. From this chamber branched to the south a narrow passage, whose sculptured panels had been purposely destroyed. It led into a great hall, which the workmen did not then explore. They continued for a few feet along its western side, and then turning through a doorway, discovered a chamber, from which again, always following the line of wall, they entered a spacious apartment, completely surrounded with bas-reliefs, representing one continuous subject. The Assyrian army was seen fording a broad river amidst wooded mountains. The king in his chariot was followed by a long retinue of warriors on foot and on horses, richly caparisoned, by led horses with even gayer trappings, and by men bearing on their shoulders his second chariot, which had a yoke ornamented with bosses and carvings. After crossing the river, they attacked the enemy's strongholds, which they captured one by one, putting to death or carrying into captivity their inhabitants. The captives wore a kind of turban wrapped in several folds round the head, and a short tunic confined at the waist by a broad belt. From the nature of the country, it may be conjectured that the sculptures represented a campaign in some part of Armenia, and I am inclined to identify the river with the Euphrates, near whose headwaters, as we learn from the bull inscriptions, Sanecharib waged one of his most important wars. The slabs at the western end of this chamber were actually curved backwards, showing the enormous pressure that must have taken place from the falling in of the upper part of the building, by which not only the alabaster was bent, but driven into the wall of sundry bricks. On the north side of the chamber were two doorways leading into separate apartments. Each entrance was formed by two colossal bas-reliefs of Dagon, or the fish god. Unfortunately, the upper part of all these figures had been destroyed, but as the lower remained from above the waist, we can have no difficulty in restoring the whole, especially as the same image is seen entire on a fine Assyrian cylinder of agate in my possession. It combined the human shape with that of the fish. The head of the fish formed a mitre above that of the man, whilst its scaly back and fan-like tail fell as a cloak behind, leaving the human limbs and feet exposed. The figure wore a fringed tunic, and bore the two sacred emblems, the basket and the cone. We can scarcely hesitate to identify this mythic form with the Oanes, or sacred manfish, who, according to the traditions preserved by Barossus, issued from the Erythrian Sea, instructed the Chaldeans in all wisdom, in the sciences, and in the fine arts, and was afterwards worshipped as a god in the temples of Babylonia. Its body, says the historian, was that of a fish, but under the head of a fish was that of a man, and to its tail were joined women's feet. Five such monsters rose from the Persian Gulf at fabulous intervals of time. The Dagon of the Philistines and of the inhabitants of the Phoenician coast was worshipped, according to the united opinion of the Hebrew commentators on the Bible, under the same form. 
when the ark of the lord was brought into the great temple of the idol at ashdod and the statue fell a second time the head of dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold only the fishy part of dagon was left to him his worship appears to have extended over syria as well as mesopotamia and chaldea he had many temples as we learn from the bible in the country of the philistines and it was probably under the ruins of one of them that samson buried the people of gaza who had gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto dagon their god and to rejoice we also find a beth dagon or the house of dagon amongst the uttermost cities of the children of judah and another city of the same name in the inheritance of the children of asher the first doorway guarded by the fish gods led into two small chambers opening into each other and once panelled with bas-reliefs the greater part of which had been destroyed i shall call these chambers the chambers of records for like the house of the rolls or records which darius ordered to be searched for the decree of cyrus concerning the building of the temple of jerusalem they appear to have contained the decrees of the assyrian kings as well as the archives of the empire i have mentioned elsewhere that the historical records and public documents of the assyrians were kept on tablets and cylinders of baked clay many specimens have been brought to this country the importance of such relics will be readily understood they present in a small compass an abridgment or recapitulation of the inscriptions on the great monuments and palace walls giving in a chronological series the events of each monarch's reign the writing is so minute and the letters are so close one to another that it requires considerable experience to separate and transcribe them the chambers i am describing appear to have been a depository in the palace of nineveh for such documents to the height of a foot or more from the floor they were entirely filled with them some entire but the greater part broken into many fragments probably by the falling in of the upper part of the building they were of different sizes the largest tablets were flat and measured about nine inches by six and a half inches the smaller were slightly convex and some were not more than an inch long with but one or two lines of writing the cuneiform characters on most of them were singularly sharp and well defined but so minute in some instances as to be almost illegible without a magnifying glass these documents appear to be of various kinds many are historical records of wars and distant expeditions undertaken by the assyrians some seem to be royal decrees and are stamped with the name of a king the son of Asaradon. others again divided into parallel columns by horizontal lines contain lists of the gods and probably a register of offerings made in their temples on one dr hinks has detected a table of the value of certain cuneiform letters expressed by different alphabetical signs according to various modes of using them a most important discovery on another apparently a list of the sacred days in each month and on a third what seems to be a calendar as we find from the bavian inscriptions that the assyrians kept a very accurate computation of time we may reasonably expect to obtain valuable chronological tables and some information as to their methods of dividing the year and even the day many are sealed with seals and may prove to be legal contracts or conveyances of land others bear rolled impressions of those engraved cylinders so frequently found in babylonia and assyria by some believed to be amulets 
The characters appeared to have been formed by a very delicate instrument before the clay was hardened by fire, and the process of accurately making letters so minute and complicated must have required considerable ingenuity and experience. On some tablets are found Phoenician or cursive Assyrian characters and other signs. The adjoining chambers contained similar relics, but in far smaller numbers. Many cases were filled with these tablets before I left Assyria, and a vast number of them have been found, I understand, since my departure. A large collection of them is already deposited in the British Museum. We cannot overrate their value. They furnish us with the materials for the complete decipherment of the cuneiform character, for restoring the language and history of Assyria, and for inquiring into the customs, sciences, and we may perhaps even add, literature of its people. The documents that have thus been discovered at Nineveh probably exceed all that have yet been afforded by the monuments of Egypt. But years must elapse before the innumerable fragments can be put together, and the inscriptions transcribed for the use of those who, in England and elsewhere, may engage in the study of the cuneiform character. It is to be hoped that the trustees of the British Museum will undertake the publication of documents of such importance to the history of the ancient world. The second entrance formed by the fish gods opened into a small chamber, whose sides had been lined with bas-reliefs, but there were no remains of inscriptions. A few days after our return to Mosul, I floated down the river on a raft to Nimrod. The flood which had spread over the plain during my absence in the desert had destroyed a part of the village. The centre of the plain of Nimrod was now a large lake, and the cultivated fields were overspread with slime. The Shimuti gathered round me as I arrived, and told me of crops destroyed and of houses swept away. The workmen had not been idle during my absence, and discoveries of considerable interest and importance had been made in the high mound on the level of the artificial platform. The first trenches had been opened in the side of the ravine, between the ruins of the tower and those of the northwest palace. A pavement of large square bricks, bearing the usual superscription of the early Nimrod king, was soon uncovered. It led to a wall of sun-dried bricks, coated with plaster, which proved to be part of a small temple. I have already mentioned that a superstructure of bricks rested upon the stone basement wall of the tower at the northwest corner of the mount. It was against the eastern and southern faces of this upper building that the newly discovered temple abutted. Four of its chambers were explored, chiefly by means of tunnels carried through the enormous mass of earth, and rubbish in which the ruins were buried. The great entrances were to the east. The principal portal was formed by two colossal human-headed lions, sixteen feet and a half high and fifteen feet long. They were flanked by three small winged creatures, one above the other, and divided by an ornamental cornice, and between them was an inscribed pavement slab of alabaster. In front of each was a square stone, apparently the pedestal of an altar, and the walls on both sides were adorned with enameled bricks. About thirty feet to the right, or north, of the lion gateway was a second entrance at each side of which were two singular figures. One was that of a monster, whose head, of fanciful and hideous form, had long pointed ears and extended jaws, armed with huge teeth. Its body was covered with feathers, its forefeet were those of a lion, its hind legs ended in the talons of an eagle, and it had spreading wings and the tail of a bird. Behind this strange image was a winged man, 
whose dress consisted of an upper garment with a skirt of skin or fur, an underrobe fringed with tassels, and the sacred horned hat. A long sword was suspended from his shoulders by an embossed belt. Sandals, armlets, and bracelets completed his attire. He grasped in each hand an object in the form of a double trident, resembling the thunderbolt of the Greek Jove, which he was in the attitude of hurling against the monster, who turned furiously towards him. This group appears to represent the bad spirit driven out by a good deity, a fit subject for the entrance to a temple, dedicated to the god of war. The singular combination of forms by which the Assyrian sculptor portrayed the evil principle, so prominent an element in the Chaldean, and afterwards in the Magian religious systems, cannot fail to strike the reader. On the slabs at right angles to these sculptures, forming the outer part of the entrance, were two colossal human figures, without wings, wearing garlands on their heads and bearing branches ending in three flowers. Within the temple, at right angles to the entrance, were sculptured fish gods, somewhat different in form from those in the palace of Koyunjik. The fish's head formed part of the three-horned cap usually worn by the winged figures. The tail only reached to the waist of the man, who was dressed in the tunic and long-furred robe commonly seen in the bas-reliefs of Nimrod. To the right of this entrance, and apparently outside the walls of the temple, was discovered one of the finest specimens of Assyrian sculpture brought to this country. It represents the early Nimrod king, in high relief, carved on a solid block of limestone, cut into the shape of an arched frame, in the form of the rock tablets of Bavian and the Nard al-Kelb. The monarch wears his sacrificial robes, and carries the sacred mace in his left hand. Round his neck are hung the four sacred signs, the crescent, the star or sun, the trident, and the cross. His waist is encircled by the knotted cord, and in his girdle are three daggers. Above his head are the mythic symbols of Assyrian worship, the winged globe, the crescent, the star, the bident, and the horned cap. The entire slab, eight foot eight inches high, by four foot six inches broad, and one foot three inches thick, is covered, behind and before, except where the sculpture intervenes, with an inscription, in small and admirably formed arrow-headed characters. Unfortunately, the heat of the fire which had consumed the building had also broken this monument into two pieces. From the carelessness shown in its transport to England, this fine specimen of Assyrian sculpture sustained still further injury, and the lower part is now almost destroyed. The inscription must have contained, when entire, several hundred lines, and is divided on the back of the slabs into two columns. It commences with an invocation to the god Ashur, the Supreme Lord, the King of the Circle and of the Twelve Great Gods. Then follow the names of these deities. The first name is Anu, the last Ishtar, probably Ashtarte, or the Moon, and not Venus, as some have believed. After this invocation occurs the name of the founder of the Northwest Palace, read by Dr. Hinks, Asarakbal, and by Colonel Rawlinson, Sardanapalus, by a long exordium, apparently of a religious nature, which has not yet been satisfactorily deciphered. Then follows a full account of his various campaigns and wars. The line entrance led into a chamber forty-six feet by nineteen feet. Nearly opposite to the entrance was a doorway panelled with slabs sculptured with winged figures carrying maces. The inner door led into a chamber forty-seven feet by thirty-one feet, 
ending in a recess paved with one enormous alabaster slab, no less than twenty-one feet by sixteen feet seven inches, and one foot one inch thick. This monolith had been broken into several pieces, probably by the falling in of the roof of the building, and had in several places been reduced to lime by the burning beams of the ceiling. The whole of its surface, as well as the side facing the chamber, was occupied by one inscription, three hundred and twenty-five lines in length, divided into two parallel horizontal columns, and carved with the greatest sharpness and care. On subsequently raising the detached pieces, I found that the back of the slab, resting on a solid mass of sun-dried bricks, was also covered with cuneiform writing, occupying three columns. It is difficult to understand why so much labour should have been apparently thrown away upon an inscription which would remain unseen until the edifice itself was utterly destroyed. Still more curious is the fact that, whilst this inscription contains all the historical details of that on the opposite side, the records of two or three more years are added, and that the upper inscription stops abruptly in the middle of a sentence. It is possible that the bills of the temple, foreseeing its ruin, had determined that if their enemies should through malice deface their annals, there should yet remain another record, inaccessible and unknown, which would preserve the history of their greatness and glory unto all time. The inscription on this great monolith appears to have been similar in its historical details to that on the king in the frame. I shall quote some specimens, translated by Dr. Hinks, to show the minuteness with which the Assyrian kings chronicled every event of their reign, and the consequent value of the historical records. It is to be remarked that, although these inscriptions are in the form of annals, the years are not mentioned. The king generally sets out on his campaigns in one particular month, the name of which is given, probably in the autumn, when the heats of summer were over. In the beginning of his reign, he collected his army, and made his first expedition into the country of Numi, or Numi, probably Elam, or Susiana, subsequently, as we should find, called Numaki, or Nubaki. He took many cities, towns, and districts, whose names have not been identified. He slew their women, their slaves, and their children, and carried away their cattle and flocks. Their fighting men escaped to a hill fort, question mark. Their houses he burned like stubble, question mark. Many other countries to the south and southeast of Assyria, some of which are mentioned on the obelisk, were conquered during this campaign. The city of Nishtun, question mark, is particularly described as one of considerable importance. He seized its king or governor, whose name reads Babu, the son of Babur, and imprisoned him in Babylon. At that time the cities of Nerib, their position is doubtful, their principal cities, he destroyed. From Nerib, he departed to the city of Tushka. A palace for his dwelling he made there, and placed pillars, question mark, at the gates, and put a statue of, probably some kind of stone, and set up tablets, and made a place for them in the citadel. An account follows of the building of the north-west palace of Nimrod, which, when deciphered, will be of considerable interest, and may enable us to restore that edifice. He also built two cities on the Euphrates, one on each bank, question mark, calling one after his own name, and the other after the name of the great god Ashur. Numerous expeditions to countries to the north, west, and south of Assyria are then related in detail, among them one to Carchemish, where he received the tribute of Sangara, king of the Kati, the Hittites, or people of Syria. 
including a great variety of gold and silver ornaments, some apparently to be recognized by their pure Hebrew names. As few of the cities and countries conquered and visited by this king have yet been identified, and a mere repetition of the same dry details will scarcely interest the reader, I will merely give literal versions, as far as they can be given, of the history of two of the most important campaigns. They will show the style of these remarkable chronicles, and the minuteness with which events were recorded. The first paragraph relates to the campaign of the king on the borders of the Euphrates. On the twenty-second day of the month, I departed from Kalach, the quarter of Nineveh, now called Nimrod. I crossed the Tigris. On the banks of the Tigris I received much tribute. In the city of Tabit I halted. I occupied the banks of the river Karma, question mark the Hermus, or eastern conflict of the Kabul. In the city of Megaris I halted. From the city of Megaris I departed. I occupied the banks of the Kabul, Chavaras. I halted at the city of Sadekani, question mark, or Kadekani. I received the tribute of the city of Kedni. From Kedni, I departed to the city of Lemni. In the city of Lemni, I halted. From the city of Lemni, I departed. In the city of Beth Hilathi, I halted. The tribute of Beth Hilathi, I received, gold and silver, and many other articles, amongst which are apparently objects of clothing or embroidered stuffs. Then follow his marches day by day to the cities of Sirki, Sufri, Nakwarabani, and Kindani, from each of which he received tribute in gold, silver, several objects not identified, cattle, and sheep. The inscription goes on. The city of Kindani stands on the right bank of the river Euphrates. From Kindani I departed. On the mountain by the side of the Euphrates I halted. From the mountain I departed. In Beth Shebaia, over against Karid, I halted. The city of Karid stands on the right bank of the river Euphrates. From Bath Shebaia I departed. On the top of, or above, Anat, I halted. Anat stands in the middle of the Euphrates, agreeing with the position of the modern town of Anna. He then attacked and took the principal city of Shadu, question mark, of the country of Sukkah, and the city of Tsur, question mark, the capital of Shadu, question mark, whose inhabitants were assisted by the soldiers of Bishi, a nation also alluded to in the second year of the annals as Sennacherib. Nebobaladin, king of Cardunias, is then mentioned, showing that the campaign was carried down the banks of the Euphrates, far to the south of Babylon. The second extract is from the records of a campaign in northern Syria. Having first crossed the Euphrates, from Kunulua, the capital of Lubana, the Sharutinian, I departed. The Arantu, Orontes, I crossed. On the bank of the Arantu I encamped. From the banks of the Arantu I departed. Between the countries of Saraban and Tapan, question mark, I occupied the country. By the seashore I encamped. To the city of Adiboa, question mark, a principal city of Lubana, the Sharutinian, I returned. Undeciphered passage. I caused some men of Assyria to dwell in his palace, question mark. Whilst I was in Arabua, the cities of Lukuta I took. I slew many of their men. I overthrew and burned their cities. Their fighting men, or question mark the deserters from my army, I laid hold of. On stakes over against their city I impaled them. At that time the countries that are upon the Lebanon I took possession of, 
to the great sea of the country of Akari, the Mediterranean. On the great sea I put my servants, question mark, sacrifices to the gods I offered. The tribute of the kings of the people who dwelt near the sea, of the Tyrians, the Sidonians, the Cubalians, the Mahalatai, question mark, the Ma'ai, the Ka, and the Akarians, all nations to the north of the Tyre, and of the city of Arvad, which is in the middle of the sea, silver and gold pieces, rings, question mark, of copper, ingots, question mark, of copper, two kinds of clothing, question mark, perhaps the dyed cloth of Tyre, or embroidery such as are frequently mentioned in the Bible. Great Yagoti and small Pagoti, meaning not determined, some wooden objects apparently of cedar, and pearls, question mark, from the rivers at or between the sea. I went to the mountain of Kamana, the Kamanus, in the north of Syria. I sacrificed to the gods. I made bridges, or beams, and pillars, question mark. From Kamana, I brought them to Bithkara, for my own house, for the temple of the sun. I went to the forests and cut them down, and made bridges, question mark, or roofs, or beams, of the wood, for Ishtar, mistress of the city of Nineveh, my protectress. The chief events of the reign of this king are briefly alluded to in the standard and other inscriptions discovered in the northwest palace at Nimrod, but in the records just described we have a minuteness of geographical detail which enables us to trace the course of his expeditions with great certainty. Standing one day on a distant part of the mound, I smelt the sweet smell of burning cedar. The Arab workman, excavating in the small temple, had dug out a beam, and, the weather being cold, had at once made a fire to warm themselves. The wood was cedar, probably one of the very beams mentioned in the inscription, as brought from the forests of Lebanon by the king who built the edifice. After a lapse of nearly three thousand years, it had retained its original fragrance. It is likely that the whole superstructure, as well as the roof and floor of the building, like those of the temple and palace of Solomon, were of this precious material. In these ruins was also found a mass of lead melted by the fire, for embedded in it was the iron head of a hatchet. Amongst the various small objects collected were figures of winged deities, etc., of clay coloured in the mass with a blue derived from copper, eyes, beards, hair, and ornaments in enamel, probably belonging to figures of wood, metal, or ivory, resembling the Chrysophilantine statues of the Greeks, eyes of black marble inlaid with ivory, with the eyeballs of a bright blue enamel belonging to similar statues, and arms, legs, and other parts of figures in charred wood. Fragments of porcelain, question mark, parts of a cup or vase, with carvings in low relief, several inscribed fragments of agate, lapis lazuli, cornelian, and other precious materials, beads, cylinders, and one or two clay tablets with inscriptions and impressions of seals, complete the list of small objects discovered in this temple. About one hundred feet to the east of the building last described, and on the very edge of the artificial platform, I discovered a second temple. Its principal entrance faced the south, and was on the same level as the northwest palace. This gateway was formed by two colossal lines with extended jaws, gathered up lips and nostrils, flowing manes and ruffs of bristly hair. The heads, though to a certain extent conventional in form, were designed with that vigour so remarkably displayed by the Assyrian sculptor in the delineation of animals. The limbs conveyed the idea of strength and power, the veins and muscles were accurately portrayed, and the outline of the body was not deficient in grace and truth. 
but the front of the animal, which was in full, was narrow and cramped, and unequal in dignity to the side. The sculptor has given five legs to the animal, for the same reason that he gave them to the sphinxes, that they may offer a complete front and side view. This gateway, about eight feet wide, was paved with one inscribed slab. The height of the lines was about eight feet, and their length thirteen. An inscription was carved across them. In front of them, in the corners formed by walls projecting at right angles with the entrance, were two altars, hollow at the top, and ornamented with gradines resembling the battlements of a castle. The exterior walls appeared to have been adorned with enamelled bricks, many of which still remained. Unfortunately, one of these lions had been too much injured by fire to bear removal. The other, although cracked in several places when discovered, and consequently moved in pieces, has been preserved and is now in the British Museum. The lion portal led into a chamber 57 feet by 25. At one end was a recess similar to that in the opposite temple, and also paved with one great alabaster slab, inscribed on both sides. This monolith, 19 and a half feet by 12 feet, was likewise broken into several pieces and had been injured in parts by fire. The inscription on the upper side, divided into two columns and containing 230 lions, was nearly the same as that on the king in the frame and on the monolith in the other temple. It was also a record of the wars and campaigns of the early Nimrod king. The other rooms in the same building contained no inscriptions, sculptures, or other objects of interest. In the earth above the great inscribed slab was found an interesting figure, three feet, four inches high, and cut in a hard, compact limestone. It appeared to represent the king himself, attired as high priest in his sacrificial robes. In his right hand he held an instrument resembling a sickle, and in his left the sacred mace. Round his waist was the knotted girdle, and his left arm, like that of the king in the opposite temple, was partly concealed by an outer robe. His garments descended to his feet, the toes alone projecting from them. The beard and hair were elaborately curled, the features were majestic, and the general proportions of the statue not altogether incorrect, with the exception of a want of breadth in side view peculiar to Assyrian works of art of this nature. It was, however, chiefly remarkable as being the only entire statue in the round of this period, hitherto discovered in the ruins of Nineveh. On the breast is an inscription nearly in these words, after the name and titles of the king, the conqueror from the upper passage of the Tigris to Lebanon, and the great sea, who all countries from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, has reduced under his authority. The statue was, therefore, probably raised after his return from the campaign in Syria described, as we have seen, on the monoliths, and alluded to in the standard inscription. The statue originally stood on a pedestal of reddish limestone, which, with the figure itself, was found broken into several pieces. They have been restored, and are now in the British Museum. The two interesting buildings just described, the only undoubted remains of temples hitherto found at Nimrod, complete the discoveries at the northern extremity of the mound. They enable us, as will hereafter be seen, to restore part of the group of edifices raised on the grand platform in this quarter of Nineveh. End of chapter 16. Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth.